Well, this is what we're going to do in Mark chapter 11. We're going to come and behold something quite mysterious about the Lord Jesus. So if you turn back to Mark chapter 11, as we look at verses 12 to 26. Last week, uh, the Washington Post reported on a new um, $100 million ad campaign. It's run by an American evangelical, and it's blanketing cities around America, the web, and its aim is to redeem the Jesus brand. That's the reason for it. It's, it's, the reason is redeem the Jesus brand from the damage done by some of his followers. And so around America, there are billboards this week and over the next few weeks with messages like, Jesus let his hair down too. And Jesus went all in too. Around particularly New York, Las Vegas. And there are ads, black and white videos about Jesus as a rebel, an activist, a dinner party host. And they've been viewed more than 300 million times in the last few weeks. One 30-second video ad I watched says this. He says, while people call Jesus ugly names, he never took the bait, never raised his voice, and refused to retaliate because he believed he could change the world. So how do we understand this account of Mark chapter 11 in the days leading up to his death? If Jesus never reacted if he never took sin seriously, if he never got angry, how do we understand How can the Jesus brand be redeemed when here he is cursing a fig tree, overturning tables, blocking delivery men, and casting worshippers out? It's a job at redeeming his brand. Perhaps our one-dimensional understanding of Jesus as meek and mild does not, after all, do full justice to this one who is clearly righteously angry with hypocrisies and with injustices. It seems as if Jesus is less concerned about branding and more concerned about truth and bearing the cost of our sin. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Let's go step. Did what's taking place in Mark chapter 11? We read of the previous day. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a colt. He'd taken the briefest of looks around the temple before returning to Bethany, which is the house of figs, and gone to sleep. For the cheering crowds, it had been a huge letdown. They'd been expecting... Um, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the return of the king, the establishing of their religion, the driving out of their enemies. He'd come in, they'd all cheered, they'd all sung Hosanna, they'd cast their palm leaves before him. They said, this is the day, this is the day, the king has come. And then he left and went back to bed. It'd been a huge letdown for them. But if yesterday had been a letdown, today, as Jesus returns to Jerusalem, does nothing to dampen their concern. For not only does Jesus not rise up against Israel's enemies, he turns in on them as a people and as a temple. 
Instead of driving out the enemies, as the king was supposed to do, he drives out the worshippers from the temple place. It looks like he's condemning the wrong crowd. He should be looking out at the occupiers, not the faithful dwellers and worshippers. Yet here he comes, back to his temple, with a strong arm and with dismissive words. And it's all sandwiched between this funny little account of Jesus coming to a fig tree and cursing it, saying, never bear fruit again. And then at the end, we come back to the tree and see that it does not bear fruit and it withers and dies. What is Mark 11? The first is that Jesus is here revealing that fruitless religion is on the wrong side of history. Fruitless religion is on the wrong side of history. This visit to the fruitless fig tree is the bracket around the hostile visit. And it's what he is about to do. He's coming back from Bethany to the temple after this night's deep sleep. Uh, He's been thinking clearly about the utter failure of the people in the temple to truly worship God and to live a life of simple faith and of holiness. And he comes back with something on his mind. He, He says, the temple that I viewed last night has become a den of thieves. It's the place where robbers live. Now, at first glance, when you read that, It seems that he's frustrated at corrupt business practices. And that certainly is partly the case. He is frustrated by the money changers with their corrupt exchange rates, with the sellers of sacrifices as people would come from all over the world to offer the sacrifices, and then they would charge extortionate rates to buy a dove to sacrifice because they could not carry it with them. But there's more corruption going on in the temple than just that. Here Jesus directly quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. And in doing so, he reveals that the corruption in the temple goes far deeper than a few dodgy trade deals. He hasn't come to cleanse the temple. He hasn't come to make it a slightly better place. Instead, he's revealing that the corruption has gone so deep And so far, that there will will be no recovery for the temple ever again. That he hasn't come to cleanse the temple, as your Bible heading might say. But he's come to finish it and its place in the history of God's redemption. He's come to abolish the temple altogether to say, don't bother coming back. You've lost it. There is no return from this. He quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, where the prophet there is utterly frustrated by the professing people of God. In his day, they're continually justifying their unrepentant immoralities. He says, in the beginning of Jeremiah 7, he says, you just live as you want with all your immorality and in idolatry and impurity. And you use this phrase repeatedly, but we go to the temple of the Lord. But we go to the temple of the Lord. We go to the temple of the Lord. 
Come to believe, says the prophet, that as long as they go and worship the Lord in public, it doesn't matter how they live in private. Their private lives are their private lives. As long as they come and offer sacrifices and sing God's praises, then everything is fine. And God accepts such hypocrisy. But Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 7, verses 8 to 11. He says, you're utterly mistaken. He says, quote, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. In quoting the prophet, Jesus is saying that history is repeating itself and that the robbery that is going on again in the temple has more to do with robbing God of his glory through idolatry and repeated immorality than it is some mere inflation rates that are going on in his time. He's telling them, look, like in Jeremiah's day, Today in my day, sin has become justifiable to you as a whole. As long as you turn up on the Sabbath day and sing your songs and offer your sacrifices, you think you're okay. You think you're living well, that you're acceptable to God. They were basically saying, as the Apostle Paul condemned the Roman church for saying, let us sin, that grace may abound. God accepts us. God loves it because grace thrives where sin thrives. We are on the right side of history, they say. We, we belong to the true religion, the, the religion that worships the, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We are on the right side of history. We're covered by the blood of the sacrifices, and we're worshippers of God. So it's not that serious. But in the illustration of the fig tree, Jesus is revealing that they've misunderstood grace. They're not on the right side of history after all. He comes to this fig tree, which is full of leaves. Do you see that? It has no fruit, but it's got signs of life. There are leaves growing, but there is no sweet, life-giving product. He's saying that's just like the people of God. The signs of life, worshiping, offering sacrifices, but there's no sweetness, there's no purity, there's no life-giving to the world involved in the temple anymore. But did you notice Mark's comment at the end of verse 13? It's a funny little comment, just seems to be thrown in, but it's significant. Mark says that the fig tree had no fruit because it was not the season for fruit. It's a funny little phrase. Why is Jesus condemning a tree for not bearing fruit? When it's not the season for the fruit, how can he be frustrated by it? It seems rather unfair. And that is until you remember that Mark has used that very same phrase earlier on in his book, way back in chapter 1, where Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, he says, the time is fulfilled. It's the same phrase. Literally, the season 
is this is in season. The time is fulfilled. The time has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the season for localized, Jerusalem-based, nation-excluding religion, a religion that accepts hypocrisy, the done thing, that refuses to welcome the world in to be a, as a, as for the place of prayer for the nations, it's no longer in season. It might have some signs of life, but there's no real godly spirit-filled fruit there. There's only one thing that's in season. He says, it's my kingdom. This kingdom is gone. It's done away with. It's the end of this kingdom. It's out of season because there's no fruit there. You see, Jesus is expressing a much bigger issue than turning out a few corrupt businessmen from his temple. He's saying that they are Gentile excluding immoral ways as a professing people of God now means that the temple will be destroyed. And this unethical, localized worship is on the wrong side of history. It's the kingdom of heaven that is on the right side. It's the repentance and faith of God's people who rest upon the finished work of Jesus. They are on the right side of history. They are in season, he says. Whereas this localized physical place is out of season. True religion, he's saying, is this. Life transformed the new temple himself, Jesus Christ. And so this temple incident is not a minor disturbance in the daily life of a worship center. It's a massive turning point in history. It's the doing away with the old. It's a bringing in with the new. It's God saying, no longer at Jerusalem, but in my son. This is where you will meet God. This is where God will come and live with his people. You meet God in Christ. It's a point where Jesus throws the mountain of Jerusalem down into the sea. And he establishes the mountain of his, his eternal kingdom. You know, this ought to disturb us. It ought to shake our own bones. Because what he's indicating here is that his reign, the reign of Christ in the lives of his people and his church, means that he rejects the contradictory and the hypocritical religions of this world. They have no place in his kingdom. He's saying that it's possible to play fast and loose with holiness, to be one thing in public and another thing in private, and to think that's okay, but it's not okay. Because Jesus gets frustrated, he gets angry, he rejects that hypocrisy. To think that grace justifies a life of hidden and idolatry is to be deeply mis mistaken. To think that church attendance diminishes the need for private godliness is to completely misunderstand grace. It is possible to say to ourselves, as God's people were saying to Jeremiah in his day, 
We go to church. We go to church. We, we take communion. We, we listen to his word. We sing the songs as they come up on the screen. And yet there's no personal communion on Monday. No walk with idolatry on Wednesday, immorality on Thursday, and the private place when we shut the door, there's darkness, darkness rings. But we put on the light face, the brave face for church, and we say, this is who I am. I am a child of God. I'm a pure lover of Christ. But in the dark place, in the hidden place, it's a place of immorality and carelessness towards the things of God. This incident should deeply trouble us. It should challenge us if we are walking in out-of-season religiosity with world-centered idolatries and self-centered immoralities, all the while thinking that worship services make it all okay. They don't. That is not where our hope is found. Our hope is not found by walking in the doors and singing some songs and taking some bread and wine. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ, in his forgiveness and transformation. For fruitless religion is on the wrong side of history, but Christ is in season. He's the right side. Secondly, we see here in this passage that fruitless religion faces the wrath of Christ. Fruitless religion faces the wrath of Christ. Here are the actions and words of the Lord Jesus. And they come as a shock to us if we've only ever seen him as meek and mild, as gentle and lowly. He is the things, but he is not a one-dimensional king. Scripture says he's full of grace and truth, that he is gentle and strong that he is merciful and righteous, that he is kind and holy. These are not contradictions within the character of Jesus. His grace and his mercy to sinners and his anger and justice and righteous attitude towards sinners, it's not contradictory. These aren't character traits that are found in him at different times. One minute he's merciful, the next minute he is strong. One minute he is gracious, the next minute he's righteous. Now these are characteristics that are in in Christ all of the time, running together at the same time. He's always full of grace and truth. He's always full of mercy and strength. And we see this here as his public public display of overturning tables, casting out. Not only did you notice, he didn't just cast out the corrupt businessmen, but he also cast out the innocent worshippers who'd come to buy the sacrifices to honor the Lord. He cast them both out. Do you see the way that his holy wrath leads to his tender mercy, saying, don't, don't bother with that type of religion, find a new way of life in me. His wrath and his righteous anger here, driving people away from that to him as the true temple. His righteousness is a merciful righteousness. His truth-telling, it's strong, but it's full of grace as well. 
as it turns people away from religion, empty, fruitless religion, to the living Savior, the Lord Jesus. Jesus here is explaining what true religion looks like. And so he's not just condemning. He's saying, this is the way to pardon. I am the way to pardon. When he stands in the temple that day and he quotes Isaiah, he quotes Jeremiah, he's quoting the prophets, he saved the people, you've gone too far, but do you remember the hope that Isaiah held out in me? Do you remember the hope that Jeremiah in me? That yes, he's condemning, he's also holding out a suffering saviour, a shepherd who will draw his people to himself. I don't know if you've ever been rugby tackled in the street, but if you have, you initially presume that the person who did it is evil. But then you find out that they rugby tackled you to get you out of the way of that falling massive branch. And you are thankful for their strength. You are grateful for their brutality. You say, thank you for saving me through your strong arm and for taking me down. (laughs) I remember doing the... um, life-saving course. Don't ask me to do it on you because it was a long time ago. I can't remember how to do it, but basically the swimmer is quite brutal. Back in my day, it might have been might be nice and light, light and kind nowadays, but the guy, the guy who's training us, he said, when you swim towards someone who's drowning, their natural reaction will be to fight you. They're panicking. They'll grab hold of your head. They'll start pushing you underneath the water in order to push themselves up. He said, there's only one way to deal with that. You've got to punch them straight in the nose. Just like, okay, I'm not sure if it might have changed, so don't follow my advice. But, but I think I do it. If someone's pushing me under, get a punch to the nose. That strong arm, that apparent severity, it's better to punch someone in the nose and then drag them unconscious to the, to the safety of the shore than to, for, for both of you to drown, isn't it? It's better to be rugby tackled to the ground and be saved from the falling branch. The strength, that, the seeming harshness, the, the apparent anger, it's a merciful anger. It's a saving strength. That's what's going on here in the temple. It's the strong-armed activity of Jesus saying, get out of this temple. Come to me. I'm a living temple. You can meet God in me. I am. The season of the kingdom of heaven is, is in season. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn to me and away from your sin and your fruitless religions. Turn to me and I will rescue you. It's a saving severity. It's a merciful muscling. It's a kind kick to the gut of the hypocrite. And so while it's absolutely correct for us to grasp the gentleness and lowliness of Christ, for that is who he is, at the same time, that understanding must never make us presumptuous about our life and say, I can be a hypocrite and go to church and say, it's all okay. It's not okay. Repentance must ensue. There must be a turning back to Christ. There must be a pleading with him. Remove my hypocrisies. Save me from my self-centered immoralities. Destroy the idolatries of my life. 
be strong with me, Lord. Take me out of this hypocrisy and bring me in to repentance and faith once more. This is what the Apostle Paul urged the Roman church to consider. As they said, grace justifies our sin. He said to them, no, I want you, he said, to consider the goodness and the severity of God. Consider that. God is good and he is severe to his church to rescue us from our contradictions. And while Christ is long-suffering and is gentle towards his weak and often failing people, he's not that in order to justify our sin, but he's, or, he's that in order to give us space to repent from our sin. His actions come here, don't they, as a shock to those with this one-dimensional view of God. God is so kind and so gentle, and I, he let me off. He'll overlook everything I do. He comes as a shock. He comes and he overturns the tables. He, he thinks less of the branding of his name. He says, I'm going to tell you of your hypocrisies. I'm going to warn you of where you're at. And I'm going to do this to turn you away from this fruitless temple back to the fruitful religion found in my name. And this leads us to our third and final point, that fruitful religion is open to all. Fruitful religion is open to all. We ought not to of that word religion. Scripture uses it positively and negatively. There is a fruitless religion and there's a fruitful religion. There's a fruitless way of worshipping God and there's a fruitful way as well. The brother of Christ, James, he says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is what the Lord is calling for here in Mark 11, a holy religion, an unselfish religion, a religion, the religion of the kingdom of heaven, where Christ is all in all where he is central to who we are. Do you notice in verses 22 to 25 of Mark 7, he marks out the character of life in the kingdom of this fruitful religion in him. It is, he says, marked out not by pilgrimage to a holy place or a merely external attempt to work our way to God. It's marked instead by faith expressed in prayer and forgiveness from God and then out towards others. He gives the two identifiers as to whether the religion is fruitful or fruitless, whether it's real or whether it's fake. Am I a praying person in private? Am I a forgiving person? towards those who have sinned against me, as they will throughout our lives. If my private life is marked by a world-centeredness, a selfishness, and an immorality, I'm likely to feel this unsettling, table-overturning Christ calling me out by, his, by my conscience and by his words, warning us that our religion's fake. It's fake. But if our religion 
is marked by prayer and a forgiving spirit, then it's an indicator that I have found true religion. A religion that looks alone to Christ, restlessness, that trusts him in every aspect of our lives. And what a remarkable description of prayer this is. Like Jesus here casting the temple mount into the sea of God's judgment, he says, by faith, you too can cast the mountains into the sea. Think about the strongest mountain in your life, the, the most stubborn religion that is destroying the world in which you live. It can be destroyed through prayer. We can remove it and the people of God can rise up and the gospel can spread. For prayer draws us into the very heart of the will of God. It enables us to reside not in the temple room, but in the heavenly throne room where Christ meets us. I used to live near a canal where the narrow boats would come and they would rest up by a pub for the night and they would come and they would their rope from the narrow boat onto the bank jump off and they would tie their narrow boat to the canal wall what happened did they draw the canal wall nearer the boat of course not as they pulled on the rope the canal boat would be drawn in to the bank for the safety and security of the night this is what prayer is it's not drawing the will of god down to us it's not staying drawing us near so that as we pray and we say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done, we are drawn near to the heart and desires and will of our living God. Similarly, prayer is what prayer is. I want to know your heart on this. I want to experience true faith. In every aspect of my life, this is fruitful religion. A religion where the secret life behind closed doors is filled with darkness and immorality and idolatry, but it's filled with prayer. Christ says, when you go into your closet, when you go into your private room, close the door. Don't worship this world, but worship the Lord. Pray, he says, in secret, and the Lord will reward you openly so the challenge comes to us what is our secret life marked by when you go to your hidden place what is your mind where does it naturally go when ancient writer said are in secret we truly are and no more False religion is at the public place of prayer, in the secret place. True religion is the reverse. Well, not the reverse. It's dissimilar. True religion is consistent between the public and the private place. We come to the public house of prayer and we go to the private place of prayer where we seek God's God, would you come into our lives and in our church and in our community? Lord, may we not be out-of-season religionists, but men and women of faith who live under the sweet in-season 
kingdom of God. So may we listen to this passage. May we listen to Christ and be drawn away and rebuked from our false religion, our fruitless religion, and be drawn again into the fruitful loving Jesus Christ.